0: Good morning, everyone. Sure is wonderful to be together. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this week. If you would all open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I would love for you to keep your Bible in front of you this week. We're going to really dig into this passage and I want you to be able to be, if you're not listening to me, you'd be looking at this text and reading it because that's what we're about today. We're in week four of our series on community life where we're studying the blessings of what it means to exist in this community like God designed us to be. And this week we're going to talk about how we are to grow together. So while you're turning to Ephesians chapter four, I want to pull the audience a little bit and see how many of you have ever built a house. Maybe not like like physically your own house. I'm just saying like been a part of, a, of the home building process. Apparently no one lives in houses here. Okay, there's a few of you. All right. Some of you have, uh, have watched that process, and I grew up in a family that, that moved quite often. Dad was a firefighter, but he did construction on the side, so it was very common for us to build a home and live in it for a couple of years, and then build a home around the block and live in it for a couple of years, and, and that's kind of how I grew up, and so I got to watch a lot of homes being built, and it seems that they kind of follow a pretty predictable pattern. seems like it takes forever to get started. And then all of a sudden, one day, a big swarm of people show up, and there's a foundation. And then all of a sudden, one day, a big swarm of people show up, and your house looks like a house all of a sudden. I mean, it seems like it almost happens overnight. And they frame up the house, and they put on the roof, and, and it starts looking like a home. And then it's like progress comes to a screeching halt. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And all of the little things that go into finishing the house seem to take forever. We were laughing about this uh, in early service. Chad and Lana, my my brother and sister-in-law, are building a house. And I think it took about a week for the foundation and the framing to go up. And now the process has been turned over to Chad, who's going to finish the rest. And so I told Lana, you're stuck in that RV for like three years, because you know it's going to take him forever to finish that house. She didn't think that was very funny. (laughs) There's a lot of things that go into making a house a home after the structure's in place. I mean, we've got to put pipes in the, in the walls to run water and, and wires so that your switches work and we insulate them so that the air conditioner and the heater will work and then there's the finishing touches there's cabinetry that needs to be put in place in various places in the house there's trim work that makes it aesthetically pleasing we install flooring and we do paint and finish work and, and all of those contribute to this final finished product this product that you dreamed up maybe on a napkin and, and delivered to a builder and expected it to show up in, in a certain fashion. Today, as we continue our study on community life, we're going to take a step back and look at what is being built and all the different people who have a role and, and, and maybe kind of look at the plans and see what is it that this home is supposed to look like. I want to draw us back to Ephesians chapter 4 again. We opened our worship with this reading and I want to read it again together, starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, We're going to start at the very beginning in, in verse 11 where he, he lists these workers. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about the, the input that they have. There's, there's really four categories. Some would say five. I think I would argue four. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then there's the, the shepherd teachers. The foundation layers, the apostles and the prophets. Those are the first two that he puts out here in this sequential order. They have left the construction site. Okay, But these were the specific people that came in at the early stages and did some very rapid work of getting the foundation in place. I mean, I think that you could argue throughout all of the Old Testament there was site work being done, things were being prepared. But when the apostles and prophets showed up here in these early stages, they laid the solid foundation upon which everything else was going to be built. The apostles were capable of doing signs and wonders under the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that to them. And as we read through the book of Acts, we see them performing their work. They could lay their hands on other believers and transmit these miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. They had access to special truth. I mean, Jesus, Jesus even told us that they were going to be the ones to whom the Holy Spirit was going to reveal this final revelation. And so as they went out into the world, these were the men that, that shared the, the final consummation of the gospel, like what, what it was going to look like to, to the world around them. Then we come to the prophets. The prophets were there, and it seemed that they had a a little bit of a broader application. This was a a broader group than just the apostles. The prophets were people who who spoke as the, the mouthpiece of God. And We often hear the word prophecy, and we think about future predictions, but the reality is that the majority of prophesying was simply explaining present realities through the lens of what God wanted you to see. So in the early church, this, this gift of prophecy was, was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands. It was under the power of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1.21, I think, helps us wrap our mind around what he means by prophecy. This was talking about the Old Testament prophets, but the concept applies to the new. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1.21. Now, the problem with, with prophesying, is you would see if you read on in, into 2 Peter chapter 2, is that it was an easy thing to abuse, and there were false teachers that arose. And so this imperfect means of revelation was superseded by something better. We see that in 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10, where it reads, That love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So just because these offices don't no, no longer exist, because the, the age of the apostles has been moved past, because the, the prophecy prophesying is a is a thing that has passed away, doesn't mean that they weren't incredibly important. In short, they laid the foundation of the scriptures that we have today. Or maybe I should say they added the final foundation layer. The Old Testament scriptures were, were the beams and the, and the substructure and the New Testament. Uh, prophets and apostles brought the structure to grade. And then finally we, we draw up to the spot where the, the work of building the church begins to take visible shape. And this was done through the evangelist and the shepherd teachers who are still working today. You know, this term evangelist uh, is only referred to two other times in the New Testament text. In Acts 21.8, we read about Philip. It says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. So Philip was one of the seven in Acts chapter six who were tasked with the daily distribution of the of the of the collection. Um, they they helped oversee the widows, and we know that at least Stephen among those men, when the persecution arose, was one of the preachers that went out and, and shared the gospel as it radiated outward from Jerusalem. And it appears that Philip was one of these as well, an evangelist, someone who preached under the authority of the apostles but brought the message to those around. We see it also. Used of, of Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 5. As for you always, be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So these evangelists were itinerant preachers. We would call them missionaries today. These were the missionaries that went out, and and I think I would equate them on the job site to the framers. The foundation has been laid, and the framers show up, and and very quickly they put into place a very visible structure um, that needs to be built on. It's not finished at that point. There's still work to do, but but the primary pieces for the dwelling place place, are put in place by the evangelist. And then we step up to the next item, the shepherds and teachers. If you look closely in your text, you'll see that the comma um, is on either side, and and the and seems to actually combine these two categories together, and that's because they do so as well in the Greek. These two are very much attached to one another, and most people seem to think this is talking about one particular grouping of people. As we look through the New Testament, we see there's certainly those who are, are given the task of teaching without being shepherds, but there's no such thing as a shepherd who can't teach. A shepherd is called to be a teacher as part of their shepherding. In 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.9, we see that that's a requirement for a shepherd. And I think it's fitting that this, these terms are combined together in this passage because of what we're going to see unfold later, because of the work that these shepherd teachers are asked to do. When I see the phrase, teacher... I think of a particular type of activity, and I, and I think you do too. You hear the phrase teacher, and probably your mind goes back to last week when we had our message on learning. Um, that, that's certainly what mine does, because we think of a teacher and we think of learning, and, and certainly that is an element that we're going to see unfolded in the text. We see reference made to knowledge, but there's more going on here than just learning. There's more going on here than just helping us to learn and discern the truth. And as we step into the rest of the text, it starts clarifying for us what it really means, what the jobs of these tradesmen were. Because you quickly see that it's actually not the tradesmen. It's actually not the workers who have shown up on site to build the house that is the focus of this text. The focus of this text is to help you see and clearly understand the the picture that the divine architect had painted, the work that he had set them out to do, the picture of this this building that was supposed to be built. And the building is you, the saints. See, the text says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, but then the very next phrase is this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Let's read this whole sentence that Paul writes. It can't, paints a, a word picture for us and then we'll break it up verse by verse. Ephesians 4, 12 through 14. He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And then finally we get to Paul's period. Paul doesn't like to use those. He likes to give us these long, complicated sentences that we have to unpack. So let's pause and unpack it. There in verse 12, he describes the structure that they are building, and it is you, the church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The word there for equip is an interesting one. It's used in, in other Greek writing to, to talk about, the, or at least the root is, to talk about the process of maybe resetting a bone in surgery. It's used uh, to talk about uh, realigning uh, different political parties so that the government can function, getting them back in line with one another. In the New Testament, the, the root term is used in the process of mending nets. In Galatians, it's, talks, uh, it's used in the process of disciplining a church member so that they might return to fellowship. And so as I, I look at this idea of, of equipping the saints, I think this is a, a, a pressing things back to how they ought to be. This is a restoration of design. This is being sure that the task that we're doing, that the thing that we're building matches the plan of the architect. I think of Paul's phrase earlier in Ephesians 2.10, one that I learned growing up. It says, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So what are they doing? They're They're pressing the people to fulfill the design that they were made for in the first place. They aren't making a new design. They aren't doing anything special. They're just helping them be what they were supposed to be. This isn't some sort of freeform sculpting. We don't have a bunch of craftsmen showing up to the construction site and building in different directions. This isn't the time to exercise our artistic license as builders. This is where we show up and we say, okay, what were these people designed to do? They were designed to do good, and so we're going to press them towards that. And that's exactly what's said in the text here in Ephesians 4 as well. He uses a different phrase. He says, for the work of ministry is what you're being equipped for. That root term is, is similar to the root term that we use for deacons. We aren't just talking here about theology or, or, or church law or directives about how we're supposed to worship. God didn't bless us with shepherds primarily to teach us these things. God didn't bless us with shepherds primarily to teach us the truth of Scripture. We learned that together last week when we opened it and read it for ourselves. God gave them a much harder task. The hard work starts after that. The hard work is pressing the people towards maturity, towards the acts of service and the work of ministry that you were built for. What does that look like? Micah 6.8 says, He's told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus in Matthew twenty-five thirty-four through 36 put it this way. He said, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And I was naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. Jesus also in Luke six thirty-two through 36 said this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. I think we are talking here about just and kind and merciful interactions with humanity. We're talking about loving others and serving the downtrodden, and caring about people without expecting anything in return. In other words, what we're being pressed towards is learning to live the way that Christ lived. And the reason is because when we live this way, it builds up the body of Christ for building up the body of Christ. Colossians 1.18 makes it very clear what Paul means. Most of you know it. It says, for he is the head of the body. He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. The saints are you. The church is us, and these people, these, these apostles and, and, and prophets and evangelists and shepherd teachers, God has provided them so that we would be equipped to do the things that we need to do so that collectively we would be built up to be the people that we need to be. So in summary, the goal of the workers God has put in place is to equip each of you individually for the work that you were designed to do so that the collective, the church, would be built up. And then he goes on to describe exactly what this looks like, starting in verse 13. He says, what what is it going to look like? It's going to look like this. Until we all attain unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. In other words, here's the big picture that, that I see in this text the goal of the structure, the vision, the reason for their work is that you would grow in maturity. And the definition of maturity is unity. For the sake of love, we study the truth, yes, of, of, of course, but the, the reason we continue to teach presses us past knowledge and into service. This, this is a community that does more than just spend time together. This is a community that's called to do more than just help one another out and come together and learn. We're certainly called to do all of those things, but we as a community are also called to grow. We are called to mature. We are called to become something together that we were not before and never could be on our own. And then there's three elements presented in verse 13 and I think that these three elements paint a very clear picture. This is like a, a, an architect's rendering of what the building is supposed to look like. This is when you look at the plans and you see the drawing. And he said, okay, I'm going to draw this out for you. Here's what it looks like. Here's what I want you to attain. This, this is it. Unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. Mature manhood and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that's what he wants the church to look like and of these three items on this list the first one gives me the most pause unity is found in christ i don't i don't think we would argue about that at all i think everyone here would agree with this but as i've meditated on this verse and i've and i've really thought about it i started getting a little bit uncomfortable this little phrase here has has challenged me because when I look at it again, I see not only what it calls us to unity in, it calls us to unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, but I see that there's also a lot of things missing. There's a lot of things not there. and It makes me squirm a little bit. See, our particular faith tradition has a long history of, of deeming the knowledge of Christ as centrally important. And I'm thankful for that, but I think sometimes inadvertently we start to act like maybe that's not enough, and there's a little bit extra there and if and if you don't believe me, then I think you need to listen closely to the way we speak of others who might agree with us on central issues about about Christ and who he is, but disagree with us on some other theological matters and And I realize to many of you that's going to strike a a very harsh tone and make you very uncomfortable and you're going to furl your, your brow at me just a little bit. But I want you to pause for just a second and turn your mind back to the text and ask you to look at it again because I think we need to tread lightly as believers. God's plan was never to equip the saints with knowledge so that we could be unified in proper worship and theology. That may sound noble, and bold, but to be honest, I think it's too small. I think it's pretty narrow. God's plan was to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for practical service so that we could be unified and not fractured in our hope and knowledge of the Son of God. The things that we are asked to know, the things that we are asked to know are pretty narrow. Jesus Christ the Messiah crucified and raised on the third day for salvation that idea that pulls us together despite the differences that try to pull us apart and and that idea causes us to to live like Christ and when we live that way we begin to find that Christ is enough and I think what we see develop is this unbreakable cycle it's like the the snowball rolling down the hill and with every turn it picks up momentum And, and I think we know what that looks like because we show up and we serve and we do the work that we're designed to do and that causes us to become more like christ and what does that do it pulls us together and as we're pulled together what happens well well the closer we get we want to serve and we want to work and that makes us more like christ and that pulls us together and that causes us to want to serve and to work and look like christ and it pulls us together and over and over again the iteration goes and and before long this has grown into something bigger than us and and so the next two things on the list shouldn't be a surprise If I may summarize these two things, he says, grow up and be like Christ. That's what you're called to, mature manhood, to be able to measure up to the, the stature of the fullness of him. That's what I'm asking you to do. Now, for those of you who are still wrestling with this idea of Christ is enough, you'll be relieved to know that he makes a reference to doctrine next. He says, so that we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Here's the reality. By putting our nose to the grindstone and working, by placing our hope in Christ alone, by seeking unity with fellow believers, in this we are protecting ourselves from being pulled into this very human-centric religious issues that seem to keep us sidetracked all the time. These issues that that toss us around and and cause us to live this tumultuous existence that that whiplash us and scare us and make us think that maybe we're going to drown and it confuses us and it pulls us away from Him and the result of that is division and I look at that picture and I think maybe we're selling in the wrong sea why do we feel the constant need to engage in those things now I understand we have to stand up to false teaching as we move through Ephesians uh, I mean Paul was big on that. He encourages and sets forth a, a high standard of moral living. Paul himself contended for the faith, encouraged right relationships. He helped the early believers sort through the very practical issues about what this family life was going to look like. Here's what I'm saying we need to quit confusing right theology for Christian maturity. We need to quit confusing learning for growth, especially if our learning is causing us to breed division despite having unity in Christ. If that's happening, we need to recognize that that's not from God, but from men. You know, we're too worried about too many things that aren't important. We are, it's like we're arguing about the decorations in the house as if they are the foundation. And, and in doing so, we, we fail to recognize that there's a roof over our head and there's, there's lights that are on that let us see and read and there's, there's running water in the, in, in the bathroom and the kitchen and, and yet we miss all of those things because we're, we're so worried about the picture that's hanging on the wall or the, the color that your brother has chosen to paint his bedroom that we, we stomp off to our room and, and we shut the door and, and we lock it and we say no one, no, no one of the likes of you can come into my room. And I, I look at that Picture that's kind of painted of this religious landscape around us, and I say, Wait, hold on just a second. That's not your room. You live there, but this ain't your house. You may live there, but nothing gives you the right to act like that. That's a room that you've been borrowing. This passage is telling us, No stop that's what children do that's an unstable and silly way to live you come out of your room and you be together because that's what believers of christ are called to when we share the same blood with someone that makes us family so we get over our differences we come out of our bedrooms and we hang out in the living room and we can spend some time moving the decorations around and call certain things good and other things not. And we can debate and argue those things and disagree on what colors are pretty. But the, at the end of the day, the structure that we live in, the household of God, is built on the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the example of love that He set for us. And that is a rock solid place to land. That's the central reason that God sent the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherd teachers to connect us on the things that matter and mature us past the point of being tossed around by the things that don't. To connect us on the things that matter and mature us past the point of being tossed around by the things that don't. I'm not saying there's not rules in the house. If you continue reading through Ephesians, he calls them to be righteous and holy in Ephesians 4.24. In 426, he tells them to control their anger. In 427, he tells them, hey, you need to get to work. In 429, he calls them to graceful and edifying language. In 5.3, he draws them away from sexual immorality and covetousness. I'm not saying there's not rules in the house. I'm saying this. We are not to be a people who gather together to point out our differences, or a people who are gathered because of our love of only Bible study and theology, or a people who who would place artificial divisions among those who agree and teach the divinity of Christ, the gospel of Christ, and the lifestyle and love of Christ. And Paul gives us the next statement to solidify these ideas. He, he, he gives us another sentence, and, and he repeats everything in, a, in different words. Let's read it, starting in verse 15. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, if you look closely, you'll see that that everything we've already discussed is repeated again in that sentence. He moves away from the focus of the human inputs... He says, hey, we're going we're to speak the truth in love. And that kind of summarizes the work of all of those groups of people at the beginning and gives you a task as well. And then, and then it pushes us. It says you're going to grow in unity through Christ. There's work to do. You're called to grow and mature. And the end result of all of this is love. It is outward service. It changes your interactions with other human beings. I mean, the only real change in this last sentence, the, all of the ideas are still there. The only real change is that it puts the emphasis in a different place. It pulls us towards Christ and using this metaphor of the body with, with Christ as the head moves us away from the human inputs and focuses our attention on the realities around us. In other words, it's like he, he takes your attention and he says, Okay, I've explained all the work that these craftsmen have to do around you. I, I've explained that, but now I want you to stop looking at them and I want you to, to look at this building that you're in and I want you to see that, that this home in which we rest, this is Christ. The headship of Christ with the church as the body is a powerful and common metaphor for Paul. It places Christ in a prominent position. It gives him all authority. He serves as the access point to the body. In him is our very identity, and our task is to serve under his authority. Paul says this is who and what you are under. There is one head, one body, and that means we as the body have to figure out how to submit to his authority and pull in his direction. As we grow together, we need to be committed to the same Christ and in our commitment to him, serve and work. That's the central focus of our shepherd, and it should be evidenced in our growth each week. The more lined up we get with Christ, the more unified we are, and the more we have grown. This, I believe, is the portrait of the community drawn by the divine architect. The reason that he has put in place tradesmen to do his work and the primary way through which we bring glory to his name. May we be a people who are continually growing in unity under Christ and showering his love on the world around us. It's a tremendous blessing to live in this home with this foundation surrounded and protected by Christ. If you're living out in the world... And you're not a Christian, you're you're living in a shack when a mansion has been prepared for you, and the front door's open and and we're calling like well, come in, there's room for everyone that's that's how the building was designed. He wants you there, we want you there, but we can't drag you in. so I'm asking you this morning if 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 you're out there and you believe and you hadn't made that choice, come in, let us baptize you. I mean, we're a little bit of a mess sometimes in here we're We're a family, but we live in a household covered by Christ and we're unified in love and we're working to make the world a better place. So so if you want eternal life, if you want to live in walls that will stand for eternity, if you want to be amongst a people where hope is our medium of exchange, then we invite you to come in. Let us baptize you in his name and walk with you as you grow with him. If you have questions, if you're wondering, we would love to study with you. And if you need prayers, whatever your need might be, We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.